right, good morning, New Wave. All right, it's my honor and privilege to share the word of God with you here uh, this morning. I can't believe that this day has come, that this historic uh, moment uh, is here. And so can we welcome one another one more time by either giving each other a fist pump or point somebody next to you and say, we're all in this together. Now, the reason that I have us say this is to remind each other that no person is an island, that because when we believe in Jesus Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit that lives in us and through us and unites us together as one family through Christ and what he has done for us. And therefore, you and I, that we are never alone, that we are a family united in Jesus Christ. And so this is something that we need to continually remind one another because this is the prayer that Jesus prayed before he was crucified, that Jesus prayed that just as the Father and the Son and the Spirit are one, he prayed that those who will believe, that you and I, that we would be one, so that when the world sees the unity of the body of believers, that they will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so at this very moment, what you're actually is experiencing and seeing is Jesus' prayer coming to a reality, that what we're experiencing right now is the answer to his prayer. Now, that doesn't mean that we've actually accomplished everything that Jesus set out to do for us, but this is just the start, that this is only the beginning, that what we're doing here is not just simply coming together, that the purpose that Jesus prayed this prayer is not just for the unity of believers, but within that prayer, what Jesus really prays about ultimately that his desire is, is that he prays, he says, God, I have given them the glory that you have given to me. That ultimately what Jesus desires for us is to really reflect the image of God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, to actually glorify God that through God's glory that this world will come to see who God is truly is. And it's actually through us that God gives us this great commission and this vision and mission to go forth into the world, to bring that hope, to bring that joy, to bring that peace and this message through the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, when we think about the word glory and when Jesus prays that we would receive this glory that he received. There's a lot of different ways that we understand this, and this word can be interpreted. And so the best way in which I believe that this word can be defined is actually within the first three letters of the word itself in the English translation, which actually spells out the word glow. In the original language, in the Greek text, there's a lot of controversy over what this word actually means. There's a lot of difficulty because there's so many different translations. But in essence, it actually means to appear or it means to shine. And so this understanding of what glory means and why it was translated in this way in the English language from the Greek, it's to really glow, to shine, to reflect who God actually is. And so glory in essence is to reveal or to show the original purpose in what something was created for. Just as an example, I was just thinking about what's one way to understand this. And I'm just thinking about how we, if you ever buy or purchase a brand new car. If you buy a new car, what you actually see 
in the very beginning of when you purchase this car, you see it, it's actually in its glory, its original state for what was intended and created for. You look at a brand new paint as it shines. You go inside the car and you smell that brand new leather. And it becomes, in a sense, maybe breathtaking. Or for some of us, it really draws us and attracts us. And we're in awe because of what we're seeing and how that car is originally supposed to be and what it's intended for. But what we realize is that quickly, that after we purchase it and we drive it, not long after, what happens? It gets dirty. And so therefore, when other people see the car, no longer do we see the full glory of that vehicle and what was its intended purpose because it's covered by all this soot and all this dirt until when? We take it to the car wash and we get it cleaned and we get it detailed and then it reflects the glory of what it was originally when we first purchased that vehicle or that car. And in a similar sense, I believe it's very much like our relationship with Jesus Christ and also for the church, that when we come to believe in Jesus, what happens is is that we're made new, we're brand new, we're made clean, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, that we're forgiven of all of our sin, that we've overcome sin and death, and we have a new life, and that when people see us, what they see is actually the glory that very first time when we believe in Jesus Christ, that our life is changed and transformed. When people see us, they see something different, something new that attracts and compels people to not necessarily us, but to Christ who then now lives inside of us because what we're reflecting is really ultimately showing a picture of who God is in and through us. But then what we realize is that once again, that sin then covers the glory in which we receive in Jesus Christ, in which God originally intended for us to be. And so what we see is that apart from God, we begin to live a life without, I believe, purpose and meaning, where our hearts are never satisfied until it finds a satisfaction in Him, where the life that we live and what we seek and desire is really trying to find purpose and meaning apart and away from God, where we're actually walking and entering into a sea of absolute nothingness until again, We realign our hearts with God. Now, when I talk about this as believers, when we believe in Jesus Christ, that we are saved, and nothing can change that. It's what we call justification, that we're justified and made right, that as his sons and daughters, nothing you can do can change that or take you away from God's hand. But then there's something that we call sanctification, where we still need forgiveness to be changed and transformed to look more and more like Jesus Christ, so that we're renewed and aligned once again in our relationship with God to be created and intended for the purpose in which he created us. Because so many times as believers, we can swerve to the left or to the right, But yet when we come before God continually to be sanctified, we align ourselves with him. And once again, have purpose and meaning in this life in what we are doing. And I believe it's the same for the church. And so this is the vision that I believe that God has passed down, not just given to River of Life, but now through River of Life it has passed down to us as new wave, where our vision is also, just as it is with River of Life, to build a glorious 
church. And so this is our vision. And so what does it mean to build a glorious church? And just as I explain what the word glory means, I believe to build a glorious church means to build a church according to what God originally intended for the church to be. Now why this is important is because what we understand about our vision is that building a glorious church is not about building something that's physical. It's not about this physical building, but it's actually about the people. It's about the people around you sitting next to you, to your left and to your right. And this is what we find in the context of the passage we're looking at this morning. So we're going to begin by looking at Matthew chapter 24, verse 1. And this is what we see is that Jesus' disciples in verse 1, he's marveling. They're marveling at how glorious the temple buildings are. And when they think about the temple, they see actually what's on the outside of the temple. And what they care about is what they're seeing of how majestic and huge and large these temple buildings are. But what Jesus says about these temples is that it's not about the outside, but Jesus said what matters is on the inside. And he goes on to say in verse 2 that eventually that all these temple buildings, what's going to happen is that they're going to crumble where not even one stone will be left standing. You see, what's happening here is that Jesus is not deconstructing the church or deconstructing religion. What Jesus is actually trying to do is fulfill the original intent and meaning and the purpose of the church, which is to worship God, where the people would gather together to dwell, not just in the presence of the Lord, but that the church is not in a building but now through Jesus Christ, Jesus would dwell and live in the temple of our hearts. And therefore now the church is actually the people of God. That when we congregate together, when we gather together, that that is what the church is. And so the church is not just on Sundays where we come here. But it's every day that wherever we are, that we are the church. Can you point to the person next to you and say, you are the church. And so we need to keep reminding one another this truth because so many times we get distracted and tempted by the things of this world and we get lost and we once again lose our sense of purpose and meaning. And so in a sense, as I thought about this, what it kind of is like, it's something that I always come across because my wife, a lot of times she tells me, you know, honey, you know, we're out of milk and eggs. You know, can you remember, you know, after work to go and pick it up at the grocery store? And what happens every single time when I go to the grocery store, I tell myself, all right, the reason that I'm here, the purpose that I'm here is to go pick up milk and eggs. But as I start walking, where is all the milk and the eggs located in the store? It's all the way in the back. And there's a purpose and a reason why these stores do that. It's to distract, right, and to tempt for the person to buy other things that are not necessary, that are kind of useless, right? Because you're going there for a purpose and a reason of the essential things that are necessary and you need for life. But suddenly as you start walking, you start to see, oh, there's candy. Oh, there's chips. Oh, there's pop, all these things that are not healthy. And suddenly I'm spending hours buying all this stuff and I come home, honey, here's the grocery, spent hundreds of dollars. And then she says, where's the milk and the eggs? I'm like, oh no, I forgot, right? And I believe in a sense, this is what we actually see happen to us as believers and in the church in verse 3, this is what happens. The disciples, even though Jesus tells them not to get distracted, 
by the things that they see with their eyes in this world, we still see that that's what they ultimately care about. Now, why do they care so much as we look in verse 3 about the signs of the end times? Now, it's important that we do understand that understanding what these signs and these prophecies from the Old Testament are is very important for us as believers because it's a sign of Jesus actually coming and his return. And the more that you study it, it's fascinating. It should actually stir within our hearts this urgency to see that the word of God is true, that the fulfillment of all these prophecies actually point to Christ's return. And it's just stirring us this revival and this urgency saying that we desperately need Jesus Christ. That there's a purpose and a reason in the life that we live because our time here in this earth is short. But yet, what we see here is that the disciples care more about the signs of the end times than the relationship that they have with Jesus Christ. That Jesus is present right there and near. And this is what we see then Jesus say in Matthew chapter 24, verse 36. He says, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. So we see in verse 36 that Jesus responds to the disciples by saying that nobody knows when Jesus will return. Not even himself. So what are we understanding Jesus saying here at this time? It's not saying that Jesus doesn't know at all when he's going to return because he knows all the prophecies in the Old Testament that lead to when actually this will happen. But the very exact moment at the time while he's on earth, he actually doesn't know. And that's only temporarily while he's on earth. And this question arises from the text, how is that possible that Jesus doesn't know? I believe it's because he's actually imposed at that moment temporarily a limitation that is just only temporary that Jesus actually chooses not to know while he's on earth. Just as when Jesus, in a sense, limited himself on earth as a man, that he was fully man and fully God, but yet there's something that we see here where Jesus that he's fully God just because he, at that very moment, is not aware of the exact moment when he'll return. Doesn't mean that that changes or separates him from being fully God. But just for a moment until he is resurrected and back into heaven, that Jesus knows exactly when and where. But why does Jesus choose this? And as I wrestle with this, I believe that a reason why Jesus limits his understanding or knowledge of when exactly he will return is because I believe Jesus is teaching his disciples to trust in God in the way that Jesus trusts his heavenly father. That even though he may not know the exact time that he is preparing and everything he's doing, that this can happen at any moment, at any time. And in the same way, I believe that Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray to really seek and to prepare because it can happen at any moment. And so what we see is that Jesus doesn't focus on trying to figure out when exactly he will return, but he focuses on preparing his disciples and for himself to show the disciples to do the same. Jesus gives these three examples in verses 37 through 41, starting with the days of Noah. Let's take a look. 
For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. You see, during the time before the flood, nobody actually had a care in the world. All they cared about was living for themselves, to eat and to drink, to be married, to get married, and to have children. See, no one except for Noah was actually preparing for the flood. And the people mocked and they laughed at him. And in a similar, similar sense that I know that maybe some of us may feel that as well, that we have friends right now even at this moment who are not coming to church or see us and are wondering, what are you doing wasting your time coming to church? But what we see in the same sense of Noah is, is that the second coming of Jesus will be very much the same. That suddenly, out of nowhere, just as a flood came, and swept the people away. In the same way, he says, it will be the same for Jesus' second coming. Jesus continues by giving two more examples of people going about in their daily routines in life without a care in the world. And as a result, one is taken away and one is left behind. Now what's clear in this passage is that there's one group of people who are blessed and the other who are judged, in a sense, are punished eternally. Now, despite what we see in the movies or what we might read in some popular Christian, fic uh, Christian fiction books, we don't actually know which of the two groups of people are blessed and which is judged. Whether it's the one that's left behind or the one who's taken away. But either way, the point of this passage and what Jesus is trying to teach is, is that God's judgment is going to happen. And when it happens, it will be quick and unexpected. And therefore, we need to be ready and prepared because those who are not prepared are going to face eternal damnation in hell. And so, as I was thinking about this, I would think about when, uh, I remember I was in high school and my parents, I would actually call them. Um, every single time while they're at work. And the reason I call them, I would tell them, you know, Mom, Dad, I'm so worried about you. It's late at night. Every night you work so hard. And I just want to know that you're safe as well as when you come home, I want to prepare the food so that you'll come home and you're ready to eat. But what they didn't know was actually the reason, the real reason I called, yes, I did care about them, was I wanted to know where they were, when they were coming so that actually I could spend after school the rest of the day playing video games. So that when I would actually look at the time, I would know that when they would come exactly, that I would run and grab my backpack, open my books, and put them on the table. As my parents would walk in, they would see me studying, and they'd be like, wow, oh, our son, oh, so good. But the truth was that that was far from the case. See, even though I think that by doing this, I escaped my parents' wrath, but in reality, what happens is that the one thing that I can't escape is the day when that test arrives. What will happen if I don't prepare? I'm going to fail miserably and then experience the wrath, the full fury of my mom and dad. You see, if Jesus were to tell us the exact date of when he would return, then we would try to believe to only clean up our act when that time comes near. And so when we understand this, 
is that our response then becomes based solely on works. It's not based on a relationship that we have with Jesus Christ and that we desire him. But we want to know the exact time and day and that moment so that we can live the life that we want until it reaches that moment. And so I believe when we look at this passage, once again, it should actually give us pause to examine our hearts. Because what we see is that day after day, there's signs and it's clear from the word of God of when Christ is coming and it's coming soon. But where are our hearts? Where are we? Are we preparing ourselves for that day? Or are we pushing it off, thinking that from this passage, oh, what we see is, is that a lot of these prophecies yet are yet to be fulfilled. And so there's time that I can wait. No, Jesus is saying that despite all of our knowledge and all of our wisdom, that Jesus will come unexpectedly. And we need to be ready. We need to be prepared. And so that's why it's important that the mission that we have at New Wave, that the mission that we have is to usher a new wave of his glory by his grace. And this is the culture that we desire to have in our community where we are a grace-based ministry that is mutually transforming, that this is something that we desire, that's ongoing, that we're changed and transformed and renewed by the grace of God, that we understand that we look at one another, that we don't judge one another, but that we understand that we all sin and we all fall short of the glory of God and need his grace and that relationship with him. And so when we spur and we urge one another on, it's not through judgment and condemnation and saying simply because Jesus is returning. That's why you need to get yourself in check and in order. No. But what compels us ultimately is a love and a relationship that we have with Jesus. And this is what therefore we value as a community. And that we remember this through then the acronym of grace. And if you look, this is the values that we uphold, that we celebrate actually the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we're sharing the good news. The G is the gospel and grace. Then R is reconciliation and what we want to see and what we value is that people being reconciled to God. And we are being reconciled with one another and reconciling ourselves with the community. And then A, in grace, we want to experience the anointing of the spirit in which we value. That people will receive gifts and visions and to prophesy. The deliverance and healing that would come as we come before God and experience that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then C, in grace, is that we come together as a community, as one body in Christ. As we gather through life groups, that we experience this community and being life-giving, encouraging one another. And then lastly, through evangelism that is local and global to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this is how we desire to usher in a new wave of his glory by God's grace. Now, I know that some of us think that this is maybe a lot of work and that we wish that we possibly can be like the person that some of us may wish to be like who potentially lives this worldly lifestyle, that they get to live it up until the very last moment, right when they die, that they then accept and believe in Jesus Christ. I had these conversations a lot with other believers, thinking that, man, I wish that I can be that person. That at the right moment, at the right time, that I can live the fullness of this world, everything that it has to offer. But then at the same time, 
at the very last moment, I want to say right before I die, Jesus, I believe you. Then I can spend eternity in heaven and I can have the best of both worlds. Now, if any of us here think that way, and this is the way that I used to think as well until I realized that this is a complete lie. You see, it's like saying this, that I wish that I could meet the love of my life at the very end of my life. For those of you who are either married or in a relationship, understand that when you meet the love of your life, that you don't wish for that to happen later, but you wish that could happen sooner. Because when you love someone or even something, you want to spend as much time as possible with them. Because the life and the relationship that we live here on earth. It's only temporary and therefore it's precious because that actually points to the life that we will live and the relationship we will have with Jesus Christ eternally. And therefore the opportunity is now that you won't miss it when Jesus offers himself to each and every one of us here. And so you see, those who come to know the fullness of God's grace and glory will actually wish that they would know him sooner. My brothers and sisters, don't wait and miss out on this chance to know him now. And especially don't miss out on the chance of missing out on him completely. Because this is what we see happen when God returns in verses 42 through 44. It says this, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You see, we see that God is going to come when we least expect it. And therefore, we can't wait, but we need to start preparing and to be ready right now. And why this is even more significant for you and I as believers is because in verses 45 through 47, this is what we see, that we as believers are placed in charge of God's household. See, 45 through 47 says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. You see, we are God's servants in charge actually of one another. That we are our brothers and our sisters keeper. And so we are here and God has given us this charge to protect, to love, and to serve one another. Because Satan is like a prowling lion that is coming to seek, to kill, to steal, and to destroy. And so we need to actually stand in the gap, to pray for one another, encourage one another, to protect one another. And so therefore we need a strategy in building up one another and protecting one another and preparing and spurring one another on by the love of Jesus Christ and by his grace. And therefore, the four anchors that we have at New Wave that we strategically are implementing throughout all the different ministries that we have is through praise and worship, through the Holy Spirit's renewal, and through a global impact that is both local as well as global, and through, once again, our life groups in the communities that we build. 
And I believe that when we do this as believers and that we're faithful in this way, that we're reminded ultimately in the last verse that we're looking at in verse 47 is this, that Jesus promises us that there's nothing that we miss out on. There's nothing. That there's no FOMO because Jesus says that he will set over us all his possessions. That everything that I have, everything that I own is yours. Not in the life, just in the life to come. But here on this earth that God will bless and provide for all of our needs more than we can ever ask or imagine. My brothers and sisters, I believe that in this life, so many times we work so hard so that what? We can maybe build a legacy so that we would maybe be remembered But Jesus says, no, that the life that we live is not for here or to be remembered in the past. But it's to look forward to the future. I believe that Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, says it best. And this is what he reminds us. He says this in his quote. He says, you weren't put on earth to be remembered. You were put here to prepare for eternity. Let me say that one more time. You weren't put on earth to be remembered. You were put here to prepare for eternity. My brothers and sisters, let's not work to be remembered, but to work for eternity. Let's prepare for what God has planned and in store for each and every one of us so that the life that we live has true purpose and meaning. Not that it's temporary and it fades away, but a purpose that will last forever and for an eternity. And so as we kick off this new year, I know that typically many of us make New Year's resolutions. Mostly every year, the number one is to lose weight. I hope to do that this year as well. But I want to challenge all of us in this to make at least one resolution on how you will prepare for eternity so that we together will be ready on that day when Jesus returns. I'm going to end with this Final story. Now, it's not a true story. And I, I wanted to make sure that people understand this because as I was thinking about this story, that I was thinking about specifically two people. Now, as I share this story, uh, this story is about a romantic story between two lovers. And it was actually a Friday night where just randomly, let's say this person, just call her, you know, we don't know, Kaylee. She's at home waiting for her boyfriend. Let's just call him Albert. And she's waiting for him to pick her up for dinner. And he hasn't said much but said, you know, Kaylee, honey, you know, I'm going to pick you up tonight at 6 o'clock. I want you to wear something nice. Just be ready. And she's like, what? Okay, fine, sure. So then she dresses up. She gets ready. She's waiting, and she looks at the clock, 6 o'clock. All right, where's Albert? It's nowhere. 6.20, still nowhere to be found. 6.40. 7 o'clock, and she's angry, she's upset, she's been waiting for a whole hour, but here's the car horn honking, she comes out, and she's storming, she's angry, she sits in the car, and she's silent. Doesn't say anything. And then Albert asks her, Haley, where do you want to go out to eat? And then she's like thinking to herself, what? What are you asking me for? You didn't prepare? And then she says, I don't care. Doesn't matter. Anywhere is fine. And then Albert says, how about Panda Express? When she hears that, she's really upset and angry because 
That's the last thing that she was expecting. And not just that, but she knows that Albert's father is the manager of the local Panda Express. And that's where they're probably going. That he's so cheap that he just wants free orange chicken. And that's where we're going. And then she's like, fine, whatever. And as they go, the Panda Express, wait in line to order. Kaylee then says out loud, I'll have the single entree meal, trying to give Albert a hint that one day he might be single if this date doesn't get any better. And so then they sit together and she's eating as fast as she could because she's angry and then he's not saying anything and he's quiet. For her, she's like, he's so distracted. He's thinking about something else like gaming or his friends. He's not thinking about me, talking with me, paying attention. Man, this is terrible. This night can't be any worse. And then suddenly Albert opens his mouth. He says, hey, Kaylee, want to go to the beach? She's like, what? It's January. It's freezing outside. Go to the beach. Why didn't you tell me earlier I would have brought a sweater instead of this dress? What are you thinking? How can this night get any worse? Absolutely no way are we going to the beach. Now, I want us to take a pause and to think about this story. What are you thinking could change to make this evening be better? A lot of times when we think about our circumstances, we think if this can change or that can change, that would change everything and make that whole situation turn around. But let me ask and challenge you here is, is that if, let's say, nothing changed at all, if everything was exactly the same except for one information, one thing, let's take a moment to think about how this story might change. Now, Kaylee gets a phone call from Albert saying to get ready for dinner, to dress up nice because he's going to pick her up at 6 p.m. She's like, okay, she's getting ready. But then she see, receives another phone call, and she's like, huh, who could it be? Picks it up, and guess who it is? It's her friend, Derek. And Derek's like, hey, it's your boy Derek, Kaylee. Guess what? Guess who I saw at the mall? She's like, who? I saw Albert. He was at the mall picking out an engagement ring. He's going to propose to you tonight. OMG, OMG. And she's like, oh, oh. And so then she hangs up the phone. And then she's waiting. 6.20, 6.40, 7 o'clock doesn't phase her. She's thinking to herself, wow, he's late because he must be preparing something amazing and special. That's why he's late. She comes out trying to be nonchalant, and she opens, and she, the door gets in. And then Albert says, what do you want to eat? And she's like, doesn't matter. <laughs> Anything would be fine. And then he says, how about Panda Express? And then she thinks to herself, oh, her, his father is a manager there. They must be preparing to invite the whole family for the proposal. And she's like, Sure. And so they go to Panda, and nobody's there. She's thinking the family must be in the back. No problem. And then she goes in line, and as she orders her food, she says, I'll pick the two entree meal for as long as we both shall live. <laughs> and I was like, what? 
And so they sit down. Albert's not talking, seems distracted. But Kaylee's like, wow, he must be so nervous thinking about how he's going to say those words to get on his knees to propose to me. And then Albert then says, you know what? How about if we go to the beach? And she says, wow, how perfect. Yes, let's go. You see, my brothers and sisters, simply because what we see is that when somebody knows how the story ends, everything changes. Our perspective, our attitude, the way that we live. My brothers and sisters, it's the same with Jesus Christ. That you and I, that we know how the story ends. And that one day that Jesus will come and return for us like the bridegroom and as we are the bride that we will have this wedding feast and this relationship eternally with God, our Father who loves us and has prepared everything for us. And we know this, and it should change us and transform us. And that we would be prepared and ready for that day when Christ returns. And so let's take a moment to bow our heads and let's pray. In Christ, I believe we have a new purpose in life that's driven by his grace. And it should affect us in how we see this life and the way that we live it. My brothers and sisters, I want us not to miss out on this opportunity that God is giving to each and every one of us this morning. That he's sending this new wave of revival in our lives in this new year and that we won't miss it. And as we take this moment, I want to ask as we're praying to prepare our hearts as we enter into a time of communion. Remembering what Christ Jesus has done for us to give his life so that we can experience his forgiveness to be set free. That he prepared this table for each and every one of us. Not because we're perfect, but because he loves us just the way that we are. And he invites us to this table. That whoever accepts and whoever believes will be forgiven and set free. And have new meaning, new purpose, new life. And so won't you receive and accept that for this new year as we come before the Lord. Let's take a moment to pray. And again, challenging how this year would we offer our lives to live our life for Christ. What is the one way in which we can prepare ourselves for the coming of Jesus? Let's pray. And as we're praying, and as we're partaking in communion, we see that Jesus forgives us that when we simply come before him and we pray and we ask, and that when we partake in communion, that what we ask is that for those who have believed in Jesus Christ and have made and taken that step of faith in that confession through baptism, that you're able to come here to partake, to receive the communion that we're about to partake and so what I ask is, is that as we are going to take communion together, that people would actually line up from the sides and then come to the center to receive, and then you can go back out 
through the middle. So please don't come through the middle. Please come through the sides to receive and to come back through the middle. And so I'm going to ask the ushers at this time to come up as we're about to partake together in communion. That on that night when Jesus was betrayed, that he took the bread. And then he said a prayer of thanksgiving. And then he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. To do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. To do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat of this bread and you drink of this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so for those of you who are ready, that you can actually come up. But when you take the cup and the bread that's on top of the cup, wait until everybody has received and we'll all partake together as one body in Christ. And so if you're ready, please come up so at this time.